Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, well, we are <clears throat> squarely in the season of Easter now. I mentioned that at the beginning. Unlike the rest of the world, for us as Christians, Easter doesn't just last one Sunday. In fact, it lasts seven Sundays. And so what is the season, though, of Easter all about? I, I mean, we, we get what Easter's all about, but seven weeks of it, a whole season of it? For some reason, it just seems a little different than Christmas, right? Christmas, we know what that season is all about because there are tons of songs that tell us, right? This is the greatest time of the year. Tis the season to be jolly, right? To be joy-filled. But what about the season of Easter? Last time I checked, Michael Buble does not have an Easter special CD. So what do we do with these seven weeks? I think I came up with an idea. The season of Easter can be, tis the season to dump on the disciples, I mean, every preacher does it this time of year. I did it last week. I was gearing up to do it again today because it's just so easy, right? There's such low-hanging fruit. I mean, you've got doubting Thomas. You've got denying Peter. You've got betraying Judas. You've got abandoners, all of them, liars, timid, weak men. And that's exactly where we find them again today. On the evening of the first day of the week, that's Easter Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear for fear of the Jews. Now, keep in mind that the women have already come back and told them the tomb is empty. Jesus' body is not there. Peter and John have seen it with their own eyes. Mary has told them, I saw Jesus and I talked with him. The, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they have seen Jesus, and they spent the day with them, and they raced back seven miles from Emmaus to Jerusalem to tell these disciples the eyewitness accounts are starting to pile up. And yet, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. I picture a completely dark and silent room. You've seen this scenario on movies, right, where somebody barricades themselves in a closet or in a house or in somewhere because someone outside is trying to hurt them or to kill them. And here's the scene. I imagine there were no candles lit, and if the house had windows, there were probably garments or something laid over them. And what are they afraid of? Well, they surmised that what happened to Jesus would soon happen to them. That their lives were in danger. That Jesus, who was arrested, tried, convicted, beaten, and crucified, was only the first of many more similar events to come. And so they're terrified. And yet, as easy as it might be to make this a time to dump on the disciples, we're not going to do that today. And do you know why? <laughs> it's the craziest thing. They were right. 
they, everything that they were afraid of, everything that they feared might happen to them, eventually did. Some of them are recorded for us in the Bible, but others of them live on in historic ancient Christian tradition. For example, in Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James is the first martyr. He's arrested by King Herod, and he is put to death by the sword. And when Herod saw how greatly this pleased all of the Jews in Jerusalem, he went out and he had Peter arrested and attempted to do the same thing to him. But Peter, guided by an angel, was miraculously given the ability to, to escape. And yet only for a while, a couple decades later, Peter was crucified upside down by Nero in Rome. The Apostle Andrew, Peter's brother, after preaching in places like modern-day Ukraine and Romania and Russia, was also arrested and crucified in Greece on an X-shaped cross. Thomas, who preached outside the Roman Empire, made it as far as South India, where he was arrested by four soldiers, where they all ran their spears through him at the same time. And it happened on a mountain that now bears his name. Philip preached in North Africa and Asia Minor. And through his preaching, the wife of a Roman proconsul was converted to Christianity. And the proconsul was so angry that his wife became a Christian that he ordered Philip to be executed. But it wasn't enough just to kill him once, they had to kill him twice. So they stoned him, and then they crucified him. Matthew preached in Persia, Egypt, and Ethiopia, where finally the king commanded him to be killed, and he was by a soldier's spear. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, preached all over. Tradition says that he accompanied Thomas to India. He preached in Ethiopia and southern Arabia before ending up in Armenia, where he was eventually skinned alive and then beheaded. The other apostle James, unfortunately known as James the Lesser, James preached in Syria where he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot also preached in Syria and Persia where he was killed for refusing to make a sacrifice to the sun god the people worshipped there. Thaddeus, also known as Jude, preached and traveled with Simon the Zealot and was supposedly killed by an axe. And so whenever you see a, 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 a painting or some sort of artwork with St. Thaddeus or St. Jude, there's almost always an axe there somewhere in the picture, which only leaves one remaining, of course, and that is John. And John wasn't martyred like the rest of the disciples. He died while being exiled alone on the island of Patmos. And here's the point for going through all of that wonderfully uplifting news this morning. The point is the disciples were all hiding that first Easter evening because they were afraid that these kinds of things were going to happen to them, and they did. Think about how many things the disciples got wrong 
in their short time with Jesus. They were constantly overestimating themselves, underestimating and putting down everyone else around them. They couldn't quite put their finger on exactly who Jesus was. But they got this right. They got this right and they knew that this was going to happen to them. So, what is going to convince these disciples to leave the house? You would think that Jesus is going to have to take away the cause of their fear, right? If they are ever going to come out of hiding, Jesus needs to convince them that none of these things are actually going to happen to them. But of course, Jesus can't do that because Jesus has already told them that it will. So maybe then he has to protect them from those things and those people who hurt him. Or at least give the disciples something that they can fight with. Something that they can beat back their enemies and their opponents. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. And yet, the disciples all do eventually leave the house. And they all do eventually take this message of Christ crucified and risen to the ends of the earth. So why do they leave? How does Jesus get them out? What does Jesus give them? Because he does not take away the specific cause of their fear. Well, Jesus gives them two things, actually. He gives them peace. And he gives them purpose. First, peace. This is how Jesus did it. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. And he's going to come back and say it a third time next Sunday when Thomas is there. This isn't Jesus just giving kind of the regular, common, everyday Hebrew greeting, peace, shalom. That's, that's not just what Jesus means. No, he's actually giving them a very specific kind of peace. He says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his wounds. And Jesus does this for a couple reasons. First, he wants them to know that it really is Jesus. This isn't some imposter. But even more importantly, Jesus shows his disciples his hands and his side because he wants them to know that this resurrected body was the same body that was nailed to the cross. This resurrected body is the same body that spilled so much holy, precious blood that this body is the same body that has won for them peace. His cross was the battlefield upon which everlasting peace was won. And the wounds of Jesus are the proof that he was the victor. That he won peace for them. That he has won peace for us. That he has won peace for you. Peace between you and God. The disciples say, Jesus, we're afraid. We're afraid of the Jews, we're afraid of the Romans, we're afraid of being arrested like you. 
We're afraid of being beaten like you, of suffering like you. We're afraid of the pain and the shame. We're afraid to die like you. And Jesus' answer to their fear is to show them his wounds. And to say, look, everything you fear, I have overcome. So what is the cause of your fear today? Whatever it is, I'm assuming that it is something you have been praying for the Lord to take the cause of your fear away. Because you've convinced yourself that the only way you are ever going to get rid of the fear is if God takes away the cause of your fear. And maybe he will. It's a perfectly fine prayer to pray. Maybe he will take away your disease, take away your pain. Maybe he will fix your marriage, fix your job, fix the economy, fix your kids. Maybe he'll do all of that. But maybe he won't. He didn't for the disciples. He instead shows to them his wounds. And that is something that Jesus will absolutely do for you. In the preaching of the gospel, he will show you the wounds of a resurrected Savior who has overcome death and the grave for you. In the preaching of the gospel, he will point to you, point you to the wounds of a living Lord who has won for you peace. His wounds are the all-sufficient evidence to prove the most important thing you need to know in this life, and it's this. God is not angry with you. Jesus lives, and your sins are forgiven. Jesus lives, and there is no judgment left for you. Jesus lives, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and by faith you are. On the other side of death is waiting for you the smiling face of God. So as the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The hands inside of Jesus give you peace and being at peace with God gives you courage. Courage to face whatever fears plague you. Courage to face death itself. Courage to live today and to live tomorrow and to live for however long it is that the Lord deems you will live here. But it's not only peace that Jesus comes to give today. He also gives a purpose. He tells the disciples, peace be with you. Then he shows them his hands and his side. And then he gives them purpose. He gives them a reason for living. He gives them a reason to leave the barricaded room. And this is a huge, huge deal, isn't it? To have a purpose in life. We connect having a purpose with the 
the lifelong question of what is the meaning of life? Why do I exist? What should I be doing? Why am I here? And we ask that question because we know the danger of having a purposeless existence. We fear what might happen if we don't know why we exist. And this is a universal fear. It attacks you at every stage of life. When you think about it, when, when you're younger, it is the stress of trying to figure out what is my purpose and path for life. A midlife crisis is really a crisis of purpose. As you start to take inventory over your life and you realize that all of your hopes and dreams that you had in your 20s and maybe early 30s, well, not really many of them have come to fruition. So what then is the purpose of my life? In your later years, it is the fear that you have not fulfilled your purpose and you're running out of time. The question shifts for why am, from why am I here to why am I still here? To not have a purpose is to be on the path to despair. So Jesus comes to his disciples who are hiding in fear. He gives them peace and forgiveness and courage, courage to live and courage to die, but they're still not going to leave their safe space unless there's a reason to. Thank you for the peace. Thank you for the forgiveness, Jesus. None of that changes what's waiting for us outside. Unless Jesus is going to give them a purpose to leave. And not only does Jesus give them a purpose, he gives them the greatest purpose there is. Peace be with you, Jesus says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus gives his disciples a reason to leave. He gives them a purpose that would drive them out to face their fears. And Jesus gives both the disciples and to you a purpose. There is a purpose for your life at every single stage. And just as Jesus has given you a specific kind of peace, he's also given you a specific purpose. This isn't just some sort of spiritual TED talk. I'm not giving you a psychological pep talk saying, hey, there's a purpose for you. Now go out there and find it. No, Jesus has a specific peace for you. You are a Christian, and this is a Christian church, and this is a Christian sermon, and because you are Christians, Jesus gives you a very Christian purpose. And the purpose is this. Your purpose is giving out the forgiveness of sins. Your life is set apart in this world for this purpose, that you would be forgiven and that you would forgive. Your life is for the purpose of knowing and making known the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as the Father has sent me, Jesus said, he has sent me to win forgiveness and peace for the world, so I am sending you to proclaim it, to share it, to give it to everyone you see. 
And so now the disciples can leave. They have their reason. They have their purpose. It is to forgive sins. This is not only why they leave the house. This is why they travel to the end of the known world. This is why they travel to places like India and Africa and Russia and Europe. This is why they lived their lives. This is why they risked their lives. This is ultimately what cost them their lives. The forgiveness of sins. But it was absolutely worth living for and it is absolutely worth dying for. And this is why you leave this place. It's why you get up in the morning and you face your fears and all the troubles of life because you have been given this purpose to be forgiven and to forgive those around you. That's already happened this morning right here. Hopefully you caught that. It happens here actually every week at the very beginning of the service in the words of the absolution. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and you are. Your sins, all of them, really have been driven away by the word of Christ. But I'm not the only one who can do that. You are too. In fact, every Christian has been given that authority, and friends, we have to know and remember that. And it starts in your own home. There's no greater act of love that can go on between a husband and a wife than the forgiveness of sins. There's no greater act of love that you can give to or do for your children than to forgive their sins. Grandparents, this should be your greatest joy to do with your grandchildren is to forgive their sins. Kids, forgive your parents. They need a lot of it. It's a wonderful thing that you get to do for them, to look at your mom and your dad and say, I forgive you. Jesus tells you you can do that. To forgive the sins of your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, and your friend. You know, this sort of really sad thing has happened out in the world today, a couple sad things, but this one comes to my mind this week, that we as Christians have become more well-known for the things we reject the things that we don't believe, the things that we avoid and despise more so than the things we do believe, more so than the very purpose that the risen Lord Jesus has given to you and to me and to his entire church. And so what would happen, instead of being known as the people who don't like this or who hate that or who reject this, what if we were known as the people who did this? That in a cancel culture world, in a world that has a digital memory and forgives nothing and remembers everything, what if when they saw you, what if when they saw this place, they said, those are the people, that is the place that will forgive you? That we would be people who are so filled with peace and courage and joy and forgiveness that we could hardly have a conversation without it spilling out of us. Tis the season to dump on the disciples. I'll do it again. It's too easy not to, but, but we're not going to do it today. Fear drove the disciples behind locked doors, but peace and purpose drove them out. 
May it do the same for you today, friends. Jesus lives and forgiveness is yours. Yours to believe and yours to share. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.